Charter schools have fought for decades to receive their fair share of per-pupil funding, but they still typically receive some $3,000 less per student than their district peers. Although charters tend to get near-equal funding from the state, they rarely have access to local supplemental funds collected by districts. But that may be changing. In a new article for Education Next, three scholars from the University of Colorado, Denver, describe how both Colorado and Florida passed breakthrough laws in 2017, mandating that charters have equitable access to local tax revenue. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Parker Baxter, scholar-in-residence and director of the Center for Education Policy Analysis at the University of Colorado Denver School of Public Affairs. Parker's new article, A Bigger Slice of the Money Pie, which he co-authored with his UCD colleagues, Toddy Eli and Paul Teske, will appear in the spring 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Parker, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Hi, Barty. Thanks for having me. So the conventional wisdom is that 2016 and 17 were tough years for charter schools politically. I mean, they lost a high-profile ballot initiative to lift a cap on charters here in Massachusetts. They faced growing criticism from national civil rights groups. Our Ednex survey data suggests they may have lost some ground with the uh, American public. But your article pushes back a bit on that narrative, or at least suggests that the news has not been all bad for charter schools. Why were these laws passed in Colorado and Florida significant? What makes them unique? Well, as you noted, uh, in your intro, um, charter advocates have been working really since the beginning um, of the charter school movement to gain access to um, these local supplemental funds. Um, really, the the primary obstacle to starting a new charter school um, is access to facility funding. Often, um, per pupil funding only pays for operating operating costs, but. Um, charter advocates have really been focused for a long time on on getting access to um, the additional funding that districts are able to raise through lo- local property taxing. So let's unpack how that works a bit. So as I mentioned, charters generally receive roughly the same amount that a district school gets in terms of revenue from the state on a per-pupil basis. They often also get a share, at least, of local operating costs that a district raises uh, you know, from its own residents. But you're talking about another category of expenditures here. Is that right? That's right. This is in addition to the operating fund that some states do um, allow charters to uh, collect locally. Th- these are additional um, funds that districts raise through what are called mill levy overrides. Uh, additional local taxes that they use for operating and capital expenses. Uh, And so this can be really important for charters to be able to do things like acquire facilities uh, and um, be successful educationally. Um, So both Colorado and Florida took action this past year. And at least uh, at a superficial level, there are a lot of similarities between these two states and their charter sectors. They've been growing steadily in terms of charter enrollment. In Colorado, I think the latest numbers I've seen is about 12% of students enrolled in charters. Florida, about 15%. Most of those schools are authorized by their own districts. There are also some political similarities. They're among the states that are competitive in presidential elections. But 
a main takeaway from your article is that the political process, at least, that led to these two laws was quite different. So let's take them in turn and start with Colorado. You got to watch the process up close there. How did this unfold? Advocates have been working in Colorado um, for several years um, as part of a a larger uh, effort uh, hosted by the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, where they have been um, working in a coalition um, and trying to move this to the legislature uh, over the course of several years. And um, this year, I guess the stars aligned and um, the coalition was able to uh, convince the legislature to, uh, at the last minute, um, to adopt this change to the law. And I think the, uh, the, the message we've heard from Colorado Charter School advocates is that um, they were able to uh, convince folks that this was really a matter of equity and that um, charter school students need access to these funds just as any other students in the state, and they were able to form a bipartisan coalition and make it happen. How did the debate in Colorado break down along party lines? You have a Democratic governor and, I believe, a, a split in the legislature. How, how did this intersect with partisan politics? Sure. I, I think certainly there was um, some partisan disagreement. It's not um, all... Uh, all collaboration, but um, charter, charter schools in Colorado have enjoyed bipartisan support for many years. And um, while there are certainly folks on both sides of the aisle who um, are not on board, I think charters in general are seen as a bipartisan issue in Colorado. And what was different in Florida? Well, it's hard to say. You know, I think that's in some ways what um, why we wrote the article was because really the the different reactions in the two states to what were very similar policy changes um, really—it's—it's um, it's sort of striking um, how how differently the two laws were received in both states. And I think um, you know there's probably lots of reasons why they are different. I think in part the charter sectors are very different in the two states um, and are. Res- perceived publicly differently, um, different political dynamics. Uh, and I think all of those things are, are contributing to the different reaction. And one of the things you note is that Florida, there's a larger share of charters that are managed by for-profit education management organizations, and that that's led to allegations of profiteering and uh, such that may have, I don't know, tarnished the image of charters in the state, or at least more clearly divided the state along party lines when it comes to that debate? Yeah, I I mean, this is certainly, um, you know, just um, a supposition on our part, but I do think um, where charters have been um, or have enjoyed bipartisan support, um, they, you know, an issue is often... um, the dividing issue can often be um, the issue of for-profits. And just as an example, Democrats for education reform, um, the wing of the Democratic Party that has been most supportive of charter schools explicitly um, is opposed to for-profit charter schools. Um, So in a state like Florida, where 50% of the students 
in the state are enrolled in schools that are operated by a for-profit, it's not surprising that um, you don't see Democrats who might otherwise support charter schools under different conditions supporting them in Florida. So ultimately, this law passes in Florida sort of as a last-minute addition to the must-pass budget, I believe. Um, The process was roundly criticized by a number of editorial pages and observers, even some of whom were were supportive of the the measure. You know, it it made me wonder, um, one of the differences between Colorado and Florida was that uh, the Republicans did have unified control of the legislature and uh, the governor's office. And so it seemed to me that the those who were pushing a uh, the policy to make it as generous as possible to charters really didn't have the incentive or the need to compromise, as was the case in Colorado along the way. They knew that they had the um, ability to sort of force things through at the end of the day if it needed to happen. Yeah, I think I think that certainly. Um uh, at play here, and I think it, again is actually another um, striking element of the situation in Florida, where um, not only did the Republican Party control the legislature, but they ended up passing a bill um, without some Republican support um, because those uh, those Republicans are at least have been publicly more moderate um, about charter schools, and um, several of them for example, wanted provisions in the law that would have prevented, um, I think the term of art is uh, private enrichment. And so that would have restricted the ability of these for-profits to benefit from the new facility funding, or at least would have restricted conflicts of interest in personal enrichment. Those provisions were removed at the last minute and that caused some even moderate Republicans to to uh, withdraw their support for the legislation. I also should say that it is important to note that the Florida law is includes um, a bunch of provisions that are controversial, including what has been called Schools of Hope, which is a, um, a school turnaround initiative and an effort to attract um, high-quality charter school operators from out of state to come to Florida, and that um, is a real um, a real bone of contention with districts and much of the education establishment. So it, it is hard to separate um, the establishment's opposition to this funding from the larger bill. But um, but as I say, I think it's also. Uh, interesting to note that even um, Republicans who have been supportive of charters in the past um, did not end up voting for this legislation. So ultimately, what do you think we can learn from putting these two states side by side? I guess one lesson is that charter school policy isn't an exception to the rule that all politics is local and that analyses of national trends can only take us so far. But what else would you say are your big takeaways from having uh, written this article? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, one is just that we often talk about the charter school sector as if there were a national charter school sector, but I think this, um, the example, the experience in these two states really shows the extent to which 
the charter sector is really state by state and that um, you can see uh, very different uh, environments and, and uh, result in very different kinds of support for charters. I think also um, the issue of, uh, of, of bipartisan support in Colorado is demonstration that it is possible to cross party lines on this issue and that um, this is not necessarily a partisan issue in the way that it would appear to be if you only looked at Florida. So I think for folks in states where there is the possibility of bipartisan compromise, this should be encouraging. At the same time, this is also evidence that there are states where this is an extremely polarized issue and where there are, I think, some legitimate concerns about regulatory capture and rent-seeking um, by, by for-profit companies. I think that indicates that um, if you're in one of those states, I think I would be nervous as a charter school advocate because it, it is difficult to um, it's difficult to to advocate for an issue when um, when it, it gets it gets reduced down to this total partisan opposition. And uh, I ultimately think also it raises some real issues around how do we ensure that when um, charter schools are granted access to these funds that it's that we do it in a way that promotes the public interest. And I think in an environment where the politics are so polarized, it's difficult to produce strong policy. My guest today has been Parker Baxter, director of the Center for Education Policy Analysis at the University of Colorado, Denver. His article, A Bigger Slice of the Money Pie, is available now at educationnext.org. Parker, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your content so that you don't miss an episode. While you're there, be sure to check out our archive, and especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners, and more listeners find us.